presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Brought to you by Williams Audio. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, this is John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of uh, several anthologies such as Wastelands and The Living Dead. Uh, my latest two books are uh, The Living Dead 2 and The Way of the Wizard, and I'm also the editor of Fantasy Magazine and Lightspeed Magazine. And I'm David Barkerley. Uh, my short stories appear in books such as New Voices in Science Fiction and Fantasy the Best of the Year. And my latest stories are Cats in Victory in Lightspeed, The Skullface City in The Living Dead 2, and Family Tree in The Way of the Wizard. Uh, so today on the show, we'll be talking to Hugo and Nebula award-winning author Greg Bear. Um, Greg Bear is the author of over 40 books, including uh, Quantico, Eon, Slant, Darwin's Children, and The Forge of God. His latest novel is Hull Zero Three, and Halo, Cryptum, book one in the Forerunner saga, is due out in January. Okay, so let's get Greg Bear on the phone. Hello? Hi, this is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, how's it going? It's Greg. Thanks for joining us on the show. Um, my, my pleasure. Okay, so uh, why don't you start us off? Uh, just tell us a little bit about your latest novel, uh, Hole Zero Three. Uh, just handed in uh, Hole Zero Three last year. We're getting it published uh, this year. Um, it's uh, doing quite well, actually, in the early stages. Some good reviews are coming out. we got a starred review and Publishers Weekly. It's kind of a, my take on a classic science fiction theme, the Generation Starship. I always love those kinds of books, and in this one I've decided to up the ante a little bit and make it a little more scientifically convincing as to how we might actually travel between the stars and how things also might go very, very wrong. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about the science that you put into the book, That you know, the sort of realistic uh, aspects of it? Well, back in, uh, in my college days in the late 1960s, I had an astronomy professor who pointed out that you know to have a, a starship reach sufficient speed to get between the stars in any reasonable period of time, You'd have to have a mass ratio of, of, uh, of reaction mass fuel to the mass of the starship that would just be impossible on the order of, you know, a billion or a trillion times. And then it occurred to me that there is one way to do that, which is go out to the Oort cloud and strap your starship to a giant ice moonlet out there and slowly build it up uh, with, you know, a somewhat sophisticated drive and use the entire moonlet for your fuel supply. So that's what happens in Hull 03 is we actually have a – a, a three-part starship strapped to a giant ice moon. Okay, so uh, your recent novels, Quantico and Mariposa, are set in the very near future. Uh, how have real-world yeah. events developed uh, since you first thought up those books, and would have been some sim similarities or differences between that and what you imagined? Well, I think both Quantico and Mariposa have turned out to be uh, alarmingly spot-on. In Quantico, which was finished back around 2004, I postulated the United States would be heading into a major economic downturn. Uh, caused by, you know, spending without taxation and uh, spending on wars without paying for them and all that sort of thing. And it turns out that's exactly where we are. Uh, as far as the religious wars go that I laid out in Quantico, we're still there. We probably will be there for another 30 or 40 years. Uh, in Mariposa, I wanted to write a more upbeat story. At the same time, I wanted to finish off the cycle that I began in Quantico and also lead into the politics that I describe in earlier novels like Queen of Angels and, and uh, Slant. In uh, Slant, I had Green Idaho developing, which is a kind of a secessionist state in the Northwest. Uh, it looks like we're heading into that region now with states like Texas threatening to secede, or at least hinting that they might like to. And so what are some of the imaginary technologies used in those books? 
Uh, in Quantico, we had a lot of uh, bio threat analysis material equipment. We had what I called a WAG-D, a right assay a germ detector, uh, which the users called the uh, uh, the death stick because what you would do is you would rub it over a surface and it would pick up any of the pathogens that might be on that surface, analyze them, and report to you and tell you whether you need to get the hell out of there or not. That's pretty close to being used now. We also had a lot of networking equipment built into the uh, the glasses and the uh, the uniforms and so on that FBI agents and other police officers would wear, along with uh, soldiers, of course, who are developing that technology now. Uh, so they would be able to have a team of investigators networked and talking to each other and also recording in eyeglass video what they'd be seeing so they could use it later for forensic evidence or just to defend themselves against charges of any sort. Um, that's pretty much coming true now. I just gave a talk at TEDx uh, this year about uh, you know the possibilities of a society being too closely observed where nobody can get away with anything. That becomes a little alarming because I think we do need to get away with a few things. It kind of acts as a lubricant on our society. Uh, to have your errors pointed out to you in endless detail could really be, I think, uh, not a positive thing. Uh, so one of your other current projects is uh, you're collaborating with Neil Stevenson and others on an experimental fiction project called the Mongoliad. Um, what's that all about? Mongoliad got started about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now. Uh, Neil is a passionate uh, follower of sword play and, and Western martial arts. And so he got a group of those together, and uh, uh, we started practicing first with gentlemen's canes, what's called Bartitsu, or the Barton Wright School of, of Self-Defense. We found out that gentlemen's canes, even if they only have wooden tips, are a little too dangerous to mess around with, so we decided to switch over to swords, another of Neil's passions. And we've been practicing with swords, which moved us into the notion of of, uh, of writing a, uh, a really accurate novel about uh, the use of swords in history. Uh, and we worked our way back from the 13th and 14th centuries to the, uh, to the middle 13th century, to 1241, and realized we actually had the beginning of an epic history novel here, dealing with the farthest western reach of the Mongolian uh, hordes uh, to a, a Polish-German town called Legnica in 1241. We would take that and, and send a group of valiant knights and uh, uh, basically knight monks uh, to send them east to try and prevent further problems in Europe. Uh, and that's the beginning of what probably the last great epic of, of uh, European literature. That's why they call it the Mongoliad. Could you talk about the distribution because it's released through apps or something like that? Yeah, we have an app now available on the iPhone. I believe our iPad app is coming up shortly. We're working on the Droid and the Kindle apps, and you can read it on your computer right now. So for $10 a year, which is quite a bargain considering the length of text you'll be getting, we deliver a subscription of once, uh, you know, a chapter every now and then, uh, to be read on your, on your machine, uh, or, uh, eventually to be printed up and, and put into a book. I saw a video of, um, you know, demonstrating medieval sword fighting techniques, and it really struck me how ugly it is. It's not like fencing. It's they were, you know, hitting people with the pommel and punching and kicking and tripping, and it was uh, it was very sort of back alley knife fight sort of thing. Yeah, sword fighting is not pretty. Uh, uh, fencing is designed to be kind of a choreographed uh, battle, uh, but you're not allowed to grapple. Whereas very quickly, what we've learned about nearly all the sword fighting techniques is you're going to have to know how to wrestle, too. Uh, if you're dealing with someone who outmatches you one way or another, getting in close 
is one way to prevent them from swinging a sword at you, uh, but another way also just to, to take command of the situation. And uh, so, yeah, it's brutal. Uh, sword fighting is brutal. It's not meant to be pretty. Uh, it's meant to kill people. And when we write about uh, these items in Mongolia, these techniques, it's uh, it's very gory. Uh, you know, war is not a pretty thing, and the gentlemanly art of war, it turns out, wasn't very pretty either. So that starting off with gentlemen cane fighting, we quickly realized that uh, we were putting dents in our helmets with simply the wooden knobs on the end of these rattan canes. If we actually used a steel-headed cane on a fiberglass shaft, you know, you didn't have to worry about sword canes. These these things are deadly weapons. And I'd say still the best uh, the best advice for any fight right now, especially a knife fight or a sword fight, is run away. <laughs> Even if you're completely covered with armor and you're in a medieval warfare situation, you have to recall that archers can pierce your armor, that there are uh, soldiers with pike staffs that can unhorse you and peel you open like a lobster. Uh, and pike staff, by the way, any any peasant can learn how to use a staff or a pike staff, uh, poleaxe, in, in an hour and a half. And they go up against with these 16-foot staffs. You you can take a person off a horse. They can have the equivalent of a million dollars worth of armor on, and, and pretty soon they're just oyster on a half shell. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the whole the whole aspect of, of warfare back then was its brutality, uh, and it's not much different today. And so if people want to learn... Sword fighting. I mean, are there organizations they can get in contact with? I mean, how do you find? Absolutely, they can they can go to the Mongoliad www.mongoliad.com, find out what our sources are. Uh, you know, we've got uh, not only training videos of all of the authors uh, trying to, to learn how to use these things, and uh, along with the sword fighting experts, we've got experimental videos, and we've got links to the other organizations around the country uh, that that provide training in these areas. Uh, okay, so um, in addition to your writing, I mean, you've also served as a consultant for various government agencies. Um, what can you tell us about your work during that? Um, you know, up until uh, I think it's 2008, I did a lot of work with a number of people, uh, mostly with uh, Homeland Security most recently, uh, and that was great fun to hang out with them and find out what's going on with their protective technology. That's a huge organization, and the fact that it works at all is, is astonishing. I think they've had some major successes recently. And, of course, they've undergone a lot of criticism, and some of it's justified. And, of course, when you're doing something that difficult, uh, a lot of people are involved, and so you have a lot of possibilities of doing things wrong. But I think overall, uh, Homeland Security is one of the more fascinating experiments in, in government and security recently. And uh, to talk with them directly, to take notes and stick them into Quantico and Mariposa and everything was, was quite a privilege. There was a time back in the after 9-11 when uh, government people were really, really concerned that they weren't catching up on all the things that could happen. And so they brought writers in, screenwriters, science fiction writers, had us discuss things with them. And that became a kind of a, a fairly standard gig for, for uh, people who were able to think odd thoughts about uh, security and about uh, possible uh, dangers. My, my consulting actually began back in the 1980s when I uh, worked with the Citizens Advisory Council on National Space Policy, along with Larry Niven and Jerry Cornell, and a large group of people, including NASA administrators and astronauts and rocket scientists and generals and so on. We were we were discussing everything from the what became known as the Star Wars defense to the uh, privatization of space. One of our last meetings in the late 90s occurred with Dan Golden, administrator of NASA, in which he asked for our advice on how to... Uh, to grease the wheels of, of privatization of space, and we're seeing some of the results 
of that work now. Uh, so what was it like appearing on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart? <laughs> Great fun. You know, they warn us ahead of time. Uh, don't try to make too many jokes. And, of course, <laughs> comedy is hard. Science fiction is, is, is difficult. Dying is easy compared to both of those. Uh, so uh, working with, uh, uh, with the people ahead of time, what they do is they bring you in. They interview you on that day for 30 minutes just to make sure that you're uh, up to snuff. And uh, and then they, they take you out and put you in the green room, and you run into John Stewart, and he chats for a few minutes, and uh, and you get to watch the TV show, and then they bring you out. Uh, one of the first things I asked as I was standing on the, on the uh, skirts of the stage waiting to go on is I looked at the chair, and I said, is that the same chair that Kurt Vonnegut sat in? And the hmm. woman who was guiding me says, well, I do believe it was, and I thought that was completely cool. And then to go out, you know, hmm. the Stewart, both Stewart and Colbert are very, very sharp uh, uh, very knowledgeable about the same things we know and love. Uh, I just had a ball. It was great fun. You've also just written a book set in the Halo universe. Uh, how'd that come about? Back to the classic science fiction uh, material. My son introduced me to Halo games many, many years ago, and I watched him play them and dipped into them myself a little bit. He's much more expert than I was. And so when Tor Books came to me and said, would you like to write the uh, the Forerunners trilogy, the story of the origin of the Halo universe, uh, of the of the forerunners who actually built the giant circular worlds known as halos, I said, well, that would be interesting. I've got I've got an expert in my house that can help me. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it's also classic science fiction. I get to to work not only with some of the best minds in gaming, but to work with some of the ideas that uh, that, that emerge from or inspired by classic science fiction novels. Okay, so uh, one of your most popular books is Eon, and that's one that I read as a teenager that really made a big impression on me. Um, could you talk a little bit about the response to that book, and do you have any idea ideas about what made it so popular? That was a difficult time. In the early 1980s, publishing was undergoing a, a real kind of turbulent period, uh, and uh, so my career got started in, a, uh, in the middle of all of that. Uh, Eon was passed around as a, a sample chapter as an outline to a number of publishers. One publisher turned it down for political reasons, which I thought was interesting. A very conservative publisher, later regretted that mightily. Another publisher had a possibility for a three-book contract. Uh, they picked up Blood Music and the Infinity Concerto, but let Eon go. Uh, another major publisher, several major publishers, turned it all down. And then uh, finally, uh, Blue Jay Books, Jim Frankel at Blue Jay, picked it up. And they marketed it overseas in the U.K., in the UK, Malcolm Edwards and uh, uh, Anthony Cheatham were getting started with Century Hutchinson, which became Random Century. And Anthony Cheatham was a fairly major publisher in the UK, and he read this book on uh, Malcolm Edwards' advice, and he said, "Why, this is the gone with the wind of science fiction." And lo and behold, he publicized the heck out of it in the United Kingdom and all the territories. So in South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and England, this book became a very, very substantial bestseller. And that propelled more interest in the United States. So when Tor came out with the paperback edition of the book, uh, they sold a lot of copies. And that uh, that helped buy our house in Seattle and uh, helped move us up here. And, and from that point on, it was a matter of, well, how do you manage all of this? Do I want to write neon books for the rest of my life? Do I want to move off and do other things? Um, and eventually ended up, it was, it was an Eon trilogy, beginning with Eon, of course, but also time-wise starting off with Legacy and then moving on to eternity following on from that. So those three books kind of wrap up the whole Thistledown trilogy. And, you know, the, the Society of Digital Artists held a competition for artists to illustrate Eon. Um, were you involved with that at all, and what did you think of the pieces that were I produced? I thought it was fabulous. Yeah, it was uh, CGS, uh, CG Society, 
uh, and uh, they uh, they had a contest, uh, Eon Challenge, where they asked people all around the world to produce uh, uh, 3D art, 2D art trailers for you know fictional motion pictures. And the outpouring of interest on that, the visual results were stunning. There were some really major, uh, not just illustrative art that came out of that, but actual trailers. I wanted to see the movie, and when I watched those trailers, and I realized that the, the huge pool of talent all around the world to create these things was kind of heading in the direction of what I had thought of uh, back in the 1980s when I was talking about the visual typewriter. Uh, people being able to get together with computers and software and create their own motion pictures. I think we're still heading in that direction, and the CG Society Eon Challenge uh, points us to where we need to be. Okay, so in your novel, Forge of God, you presented one possible solution to the Fermi paradox. Uh, could you tell us about that? You know, uh, the, the planet scientists have recently said there could be you know, billions of Earth-like worlds out there, based on their calculations and recent observations, and I agree with that. So very likely, uh, it's a very, very complex ecosystem out there in the galaxy. And years ago, talking with David Brand back in 82 and 83, kind of argued with him about why we hadn't been visited yet. And uh, my thought was, well, you know, if you're in a jungle and there's dangerous creatures out there, you don't want to make a lot of noise. So quite possibly we don't hear other civilizations too much because uh, they're concerned about being picked up by dangerous uh, uh, von Neumann probes or whatever, and uh, when this finally came down to writing a story about it, I realized combining the notion of, of robot intelligences, of, uh, of nasty ecological foundations and principles uh, leading to the Forge of God, to the notion that we have been cheeping like birds in a nest in a very dangerous jungle and there are snakes out there just mm -hmm. waiting to come upon the nest and eat us up. I mean, so how do you feel about SETI then? I mean, do you think that it's imprudent for us to be advertising our presence? I think it's something that should be part of a worldwide discussion. I don't believe that small groups of nerds should be uh, <laughs> making the decisions by themselves. Uh, I think it's highly uh, unlikely that we're actually dealing with an angelic universe where all of the people out there are like you know, the, the radiant beings and Arthur Clarke are close encounters. But I think it should be part of a worldwide discussion, and uh, I highly disapprove of sending high-powered messages of any sort out there at this point. Uh, so have you been to the Science Fiction Museum out there in uh, your area? And uh, if so, what do you think of it? Well, my wife and I helped put it together. Oh, After right. and I uh, were, were on the, the first committee and became co-chairs with Donna Shirley and worked with uh, Vulcan Corporation to put together the advisory team and help design the museum. So, yeah, it's a, we think it's a very nice museum. And, and uh, some of the exhibits in there just, just bring tears to our eyes to this day. It's just wonderful. I heard that you're expanding sort of into fantasy and horror as well. Yeah, they're working together a big horror exhibition, which would be fun. Uh, I've always been a fan of horror and H.P. Lovecraft and uh, all of the different aspects of horror, including movies. Uh, and that's part of this, you know, making the, the statement about pop culture uh, being so prevalent. Um, we should also, I think, ultimately get into the whole comic book area, which, you know, with the influence of people like Julius Schwartz in the 1950s and everything, uh, if you go back to the origins of comic books, uh, Siegel and Schuster were both science fiction fans, and they both thought of Superman as a science fiction character. And uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of that area of comic books and superheroes come out of the science fiction culture, and I'd like to see that explored as well. But also, you know, H.P. Lovecraft, one of our great horror writers, thought of himself as a science fiction writer. He was he was very proud of selling to astounding stories. Uh, his combination of Edgar Allan Poe and Olaf Stapledon and 
And all those mixes of things makes for a really potent uh, mythology. Uh, so you, when you were talking about the Mongoliad earlier, obviously that's sort of an uh, e-publishing effort. Um, what do you think about e-publishing in general, and, and do you yourself use any sort of uh, electronic reading device? Oh, yeah, I've got a Kindle, and uh, I have a 1,000 books on the Kindle now, and uh, really enjoy using that. Uh, I look forward to other devices, so you can read art books and color magazines and so on. Eventually, the iPad looks look quite gorgeous. Uh, something like that will uh, will probably dominate the market. Uh, for, for pure reading, Kindle, I think, is better than iPad at this point. But as far as electronic books goes, I warn people about these uh, changes in the publishing industry starting back in the 1980s. In fact, the HP device is called the Slate, which is how, what I call my devices in Eon. So I don't <laughs> know how much they were influenced by that. It's a, it's a reasonably obvious name, but that goes back to 1985. 1992, I was getting talks in New Zealand and Seattle about the coming electronic book revolution. And, you know, carrying mock-ups, uh, actually, I was carrying an HP calculator about the size of a Kindle today, and uh, I, I used that as a model for what would be reading in, in uh, 10 or 15 years. And I wrote articles in the 90s, uh, mid to late 90s, warning the publishing industry that not only were they facing challenges from video games, from movies, from TV shows, all the the expected challenges, but that this uh, revolution of electronic books would really start affecting the revenue stream. And only only in the last year and a half or so has the New York publishing industry actually paid attention to electronic books. And now they're the biggest growth area. I hope they uh, are able to catch up in time because, of course, this has been going on for a very long time. Uh, reading over interviews with you, I came across repeated references to the author Nikos Kazantzakis. Uh, could you oh, talk yeah. about who he is and why he's a favorite of yours? Um, back in the 1960s, I had a whole, you know, range of authors that I absolutely love, both for their philosophical angle, their writing skills, their imagination. Uh, I compared Olaf Stapleton and Nikos Kazantzakis in one of my early college papers, uh, which my professor flunked me on. Hmm. But my feeling was that Nikos Kazantzakis was one of those visionary writers who uh, uh, could just knock your socks off. He was most famous for writing the novel Zorba the Greek, which was made into a motion picture in the 1960s. Um, Zorba the Greek was wonderful. But he also did these amazing uh, uh, explorations of both local history for Crete, uh, his homeland, and also for Greece, uh, for the world in general. He wrote a sequel to the Odyssey called The Odyssey, a modern sequel, which actually sold quite well in the United States. It's a monumental work. Uh, it takes Odysseus on a whole new range of adventures, uh, all done in epic poetry style. Hmm. He also wrote uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, which was also made into a very good film. Martin Scorsese directed that. Um, it, that's an astonishing novel. It, it takes the notion that Jesus on the cross has a vision of what his life would have been like had he not taken the difficult path, had he taken the domestic path. There's uh, his semi-autobiography. Uh, all of these books by Cosm Shockers, written originally in Greek and translated quite well into English, I think, uh, had a huge influence on me when I was younger. And to this day, I still pick it up uh, Cousin Chaka's books and, and just thoroughly enjoy dipping into them and reading and remembering you know, the greatness that he was capable of. So uh, what, what sort of parallels did you draw between him and Olaf Stapleton? Well, he and Stapleton both kind of emerged out of the, uh, the, the 19th century ferment of writers like Nietzsche and, uh, and later on in the 20th century Bergson. Uh, Olaf Stapleton was primarily a philosopher. That was his training. Uh, but he also wrote these amazing science fiction novels. Among them, the first one was a book called Last and First Men, 
a visionary spiritual version vision of of uh, 18 different species of human race over the next uh, uh, two billion years. Now, when that came out in 1930, it knocked the socks off of everybody. I mean, you're talking about in the 1930s we had H.G. Wells, we had uh, a few writers like John Tain, uh we had you know uh, uh, Aldous Huxley doing Brave New World, and then along comes Olaf Stapleton and Last and First Men, and it like it puts a capstone on the reach of science fiction, what is just beginning to become called science fiction in 1930. Uh, later on, he would top this by writing a book called Star Maker, which was a history of the entire universe. Uh, but he also did more intimate novels like Odd John, the story of a superhuman intellect trying to survive in, uh, in a more normal human species. And then philosophical books like A Man Divided, uh, kind of an almost an autobiographical examination of, of dealing with the fact that most of your life you are stuck in a kind of dead zone of intellectual capacity and spiritual capacity. What if suddenly something would happen that would lift you up to a higher level such that you could function at full capacity? All of these ideas tie in, in my mind, to the, the, the searching notions of people like Kazanchakis, uh, and and uh, this giant quest thing coming out of the 20th century. Who are we? Uh, what are we going to become? And how are we going to deal with it? And science fiction became a major part of that uh, in the 40s and 50s, and they were highly influenced by Olaf Stapleton. Okay, so uh, you've taught writing seminars at Emory University, and you've taught at Clarion. Um, what's your approach to teaching writing, and are there any particular texts that you assign? Oh, gosh, as far as you know, books that inspire people to write, uh, Ray Bradbury gave me a list years ago that I think is still pretty classic. I would add a couple more to it. Uh, the list that I would include would be, uh, you know, Characters Make Your Story by Marion Elwood, uh, The Summing Up by Somerset Maugham, and, you know, the, the old classic texts, uh, The Art of Dramatic Writing by Lagos Egri. Uh, but today I would add Stephen King's books on writing, which are also excellent. Terry Brooks has a, a new book on writing uh, that, that I think is very, very good. Today, uh, learning how to write basic prose uh, in an age of Twitter and everything is really a challenge. <laughs> a lot of people are very capable of writing, uh, you know, short forms, screenplays, dialogue. We, we get dialogue, but the whole notion of writing descriptive scenes and uh, and choreographing long stretches of story is more of a challenge for younger writers. Uh, for me, the challenge is actually learning how to write uh, brief, how to write screenplays, which I find interesting. So there are good books on screenwriting. There's all different kinds of writing to be done. There's game writing. You know, how do you uh, fan out with dialogue in multiple situations and branching story dialogue? Uh, that, that's a fascinating discipline. Uh, but if you actually want to learn just basic prose writing, you know, like writing a book, uh, the best way to do that is to sit down and start writing, to read the books you admire and then compare your achievements with what they've done and see where you need to be, you know, bringing yourself up to speed. I still do that to this day. Uh, I have not learned how to write and perhaps never will completely learn how to write. Have, have your, uh, your struggles to, to master the screenplay format, have you, do you have any lessons that you've drawn from that? Yeah, uh, be humble. <laughs> you know, uh, there, there's an awful lot of snobbery in different aspects of writing. Uh, book writers look down upon screenwriters. Uh, screenwriters work so hard they'd love to have a, a career writing books. Uh, comic book writers, you know, feel that they're, they're slumming out there. Uh, these are all really wonderful forms of writing, and, and writing well in any of them is not easy. Snobbery is not something we can afford anymore. If you're, if you're going to a college and learning, you know, the, the high forms of high literature, 
uh, to survive in writing today, you've got to be uh, a little more rough and tumble. You've got to get out there and experiment with a lot of different forms. And you cannot hold uh, false conclusions about the skill levels or the labor or the intensity or creativity that goes into any form of writing. I think uh, watching how screenwriters work is really interesting. They uh, they are among the hardest working and toughest minded writers I know today. So who are some of the lesser known science fiction authors who uh, you think deserve greater recognition? Uh, there's there's a lot of, of European writers that don't get published very often in America. I'd like to see more of them be brought over here. And I think with the uh, electronic books revolution, that might happen more often. I was in uh, Leipzig, Germany recently at a small convention called ElsterCon, and I got to hang out with a, with a lovely bunch of German writers. And uh, most European writers just don't get published over there. It's very rare to have someone like... Uh, Stanislaw Lim come along and get published well here. Uh, I was able to dine with the Strugatsky brothers in the 1980s, along with Doris Lessing, who later went on to win the Nobel Prize, and that was a delightful evening. As far as new writers go, my son, uh, Eric Baer, has an original comic book series coming out uh, from uh, Sea Lion Books this next year called Hope Scout. Yeah, and uh, I mean, speaking of Doris Lessing, I saw that she praised you very highly. Uh, yeah, I was quite pleased by that. She actually read my books after our meeting at Brighton in 1987 and uh, gave me some very, very nice uh, words I can quote. <laughs> um, okay, and so... then, happily for her, she went on to win the Nobel Prize. And, you know, she <laughs> may be one of the first self-described science fiction writers to be awarded the Nobel Prize. She was actually one of the guests of honors in Brighton for the World Science Fiction Convention. Uh, the Golden Notebooks, The Four Gated City is kind of a science fiction book, but it was her Shikasta series that she explored. Uh, Stapledonian visions, mixing them along with biblical visions, which made an interesting mix. Great. So, uh, I mean, are there any other recent or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? I think that's probably enough. We don't want to go <laughs> running off in all directions at once. Uh, I think the people need to take a look. Uh, Hull 03, is the, the physical copies are now in the publisher's office. I'm looking forward to seeing them. Start Review and Publishers Weekly, which is quite uh, quite a pleasure. A lot of good early reader response on that one. Uh, then we have uh, coming off uh, uh, in a few days, in fact, the paperback of Mariposa, which uh, I think is going to be very interesting to see how science fiction writers bridge the gap between uh, science fiction of 20 years ago and uh, techno thrillers of today. The, uh, the uh, transition between artificial intelligence that leads to books like Moving Mars and so on begins in Mariposa. Uh, we have uh, Mongolia, which is ongoing. You can get it now. You can subscribe and dip in and watch our videos and send comments and help contribute to our universe. We've got uh, uh, thousands of people actually contributing to the uh, PDF that we've created on the site, and that's going to be growing and growing. Eventually, we're going to be expanding it into a uh, electronic game. Uh, January 4th, uh, we've got Cryptum, the first Halo novel. And so anyone who's a Halo fan is going to, I think, enjoy uh the collaboration between 343's people, Frank O'Connor and Kevin Grace and myself and my son Eric, who consulted on this, and a lot of other key people, artists and, and creators at, at Microsoft 343, uh, to help to construct the origin story, not just of the forerunners, but as it turns out, of human beings as well. Well, uh, Greg Bear, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. My pleasure. I look forward to hearing it. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Greg Bear for joining us on the show. Okay, so uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back right after this word from our sponsor. New from Brilliance Audio, Hull 03 by Greg Bear. A starship hurtles through the emptiness of space. Its destination, unknown. Its purpose, a mystery. 
Now, one man wakes up, ripped from a dream of a new home, a new planet, and the woman he was meant to love in his arms. He finds himself wet, naked, and freezing to death. The dark halls are full of monsters, but trusting other survivors he meets might be the greater danger. All he has are questions. Who is he? Where are they going? What happened to the dream of a new life? What happened to Hull 03? All will be answered if he can survive the ship. Hull 03 is an edge-of-your-seat thriller set in the darkest reaches of space. An unabridged recording of Hull 03 by Greg Bear. Narrated by Dan John Miller. Available now from Brilliance Audio and wherever audiobooks are sold. And we're back. But, you know, so when, um, you know, when Greg Bear was, was talking about how maybe we don't want to be sending messages mm-hmm. out into space because maybe we're in a jungle and, you know, who knows what's what's out there that's going to hear us and, and come after us. That was just kind of me- making me think about how there's there's almost, there's been sort of a um, boom of alien invasion movies uh, recently. And uh, I thought it might be interesting to talk about just sort of alien invasion as a theme, because this is sort of one of the classic themes of science fiction. You know, I, I think it, it kind of shares a lot in common with post-apocalyptic narratives. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, because A, um, you know, in, in many cases, the aliens are coming to destroy the world or destroy all life on Earth. And so it sort of would lead to a post-apocalypse. But um, I think it's also sort of that alien invasion stories are probably the other easiest thing for non-science fiction people to, to, to grok. You know, like post-apocalyptic, I think is probably the easiest because like, oh, of course, well, we can imagine that, you know, nuclear war has destroyed the earth and then now what um and so that's why i think it's always been so accessible to non-genre readers but um the alien invasion story is probably the next easiest thing for people to grasp and i mean you know sort of the classic uh alien invasion story is hg wells's war of the worlds um and kind of like you're saying i mean he actually wrote that as a message you know it was intended for the general public wells was really sort of uh uh against uh british colonialism and he wanted to force people to imagine, you know, what's what's it like when a technologically superior civilization comes in and just starts messing everything up? You know, how would you like it if people did that to you? And of course, you can't do that. You couldn't you couldn't just write a realistic novel about that happening to to England because there was no technologically superior civilization at the mm-hmm. time. But, you know, well, if an alien civilization invades, then, then people can sort of imagine like, oh, wow, this this is horrible. And actually, you know, speaking of War of the Worlds, I, I kind of wonder is, I mean, is that like sort of one of the earliest examples of like, you know, the big twist um, in popular literature? You know, I, I'm, so I'm sure everyone knows, uh, you know, the aliens in, in War of the Worlds are defeated by the common cold because, uh, you know, I don't know that they didn't plan very well <laughs> um, for, for a trip to another planet. <laughs> I mean, uh, they weren't really thinking ahead. The War of the Worlds, it does sort of establish two patterns that we see over and over again in alien invasion stories. And, and one is, as you said, that the aliens are nasty you know, and, and hostile. Uh, and the other is that humanity manages to triumph, even though the aliens have vastly superior technology. And it is, it is kind of, in science fiction, particularly, particularly in movies, it seems like you see sort of evil aliens a lot more often than you see friendly aliens. And I do sort of wonder sometimes when I'm sitting in a movie theater, you know, watching one of these alien invasion movies and the whole audience is cheering every time an evil alien gets its head smashed in with a, you know, an axe or something mm-hmm. that uh, I, I sort of always can't help imagining some peaceful aliens, you know, like sitting next to me in the movie theater and, and just being horrified yeah. at like this is this is what you guys find entertaining is just the idea of just smashing aliens heads in, <laughs> you know. 
Right. You know, well, I mean, you know, Greg's bear, Greg Bear's worried about, about SETI sending out signals. I mean, if any aliens find any of our television transmissions, they're never going to come here. They're, you know, because, I mean, why would they? I mean, unless they're like predators, you know, in which they, they want a good fight. You know, they know they want to go somewhere where people are going to fight. While we're on the topic of War of the Worlds, uh, I, just, I, I was just thinking that there was this anthology in 1996 called War of the Worlds Global Dispatches. It's the tale of the Martian invasion of Earth as witnessed by, like, all these other all these like sort of famous writers who were alive sort of in the, uh, during this period. So like Jules Verne. So it's like, it's sort of the world of the worlds told by Jules Verne, the actual person, not the, you know, not writing a story, but you know, him actually witnessing the world, the world's invasion. Um, you know, so Jules Verne, Mark Twain, Emily Dickinson, Henry James, Albert Einstein, um, and you know, a bunch of other people. And uh, there's just this, there's really amazing story in here by Dave Wolverton, um, and and his story is called After a Lean Winter, and it's uh, his is uh, told by ja- uh, by Jack London, so it, you know it takes place in in Alaska, and, and so it's dealing with uh, the the frozen uh, frozen tundra up there, and, and and everything in addition to the alien menace. But it's really it was really really great. I mean, I just I love that story. You know, it's it's common, you know, like in War of the Worlds for the aliens to have big machines of war and spaceships and ray guns and stuff like that. But it's also really common for alien invasions, for the aliens to kind of take over people and impersonate people and sort of have a more sneaky way of, uh, of trying to infiltrate society and take over everything. And so, like, two of the classic examples of that would be The Puppet Masters by Robert Heinlein and uh, The Body Snatchers by uh, Jack Finney. The Body Snatchers was, was made into, uh, it's been filmed a couple times, I guess, but there was a black and white one in the 50s uh, called Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And that's actually rated 100% on Rotten hmm. Tomatoes. Uh, I guess it's wow. considered a real classic. I saw it when I was real young, so I, I only remember it pretty vaguely. But, uh, you know, in, in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the aliens, they're these sort of um, seed pods, and they grow uh, replicas of, of people in the neighborhood, and then the replica uh, murders and uh, impersonates the, the person that it's a replica of. But you can sort of tell the replicas because they don't have normal human emotions. And the thing I always really loved about this movie, uh, you know, that really stuck with me is that it doesn't have a happy ending. And I guess originally, I was just reading today that originally it had an even more sort of downbeat ending, um, and the studio made them change it to at least be ambiguous whether humanity is going to prevail against the aliens or not. But like so many of these, the movies along these lines, you know, humanity prevails against the aliens in a really implausible way. And if I have sort of one gripe about alien invasion movies, it's, it's that, is that, you know, I always find them really scary and dramatic when the aliens show up and start blasting things. And then everybody, you know, and then at the end, you know, somebody's like, oh, but it turns out that the aliens are allergic to rainbows or something. Hmm. And, uh... I, I hate that so much, and there's just so many movies uh, that fall into that pattern. I mean, like the you know the puppet masters. It's kind of like that. It turns out that it's easy to infect them with a disease, and they all you know, you know they mostly all die. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, signs, of course. You know, they the aliens turn out to <laughs> uh, you know they get melted by water. Um, and then you know, like uh, in Independence Day, you mentioned man, Independence Day was. I mean, that's actually it's actually kind of a fun movie on a popcorn level. But I was so disappointed when that came out because the the advertising campaign for it, all they showed was these uh, these giant UFOs, you know, sort of hovering over landmarks all around the world and then just blowing them to smithereens, blowing the White House to smithereens and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was going to be such a scary movie. <laughs> right. And then uh, it just turns out to be so goofy. 
And of course, in that one, you know, humanity prevails by managing to infect the alien mothership with a computer virus. Uh, they're able to get a, a Mac, you know, just hooked up to the alien ship. Uh, I was thinking about this and, you know, you know, last last show we were talking about zombies. And there are so many zombie movies where either the zombies kill everybody or, you know, a couple people survive the zombie apocalypse. But, you know, it's not like they they defeat all the zombies and everything's great again. Yeah. And I just wonder why can't more alien invasion movies sort of follow that same thing where, you know, it's enough to have a couple people survive the alien invasion for the time being. We don't have to completely win the war against the <laughs> aliens forever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, when you were saying, when you were talking about, like, puppet masters and stuff, uh, you didn't mention The Thing, you know, the John Carpenter film, which was actually, you know, a remake of an earlier film, which was based on a story by John W. Campbell called uh, Who Goes There?, but, I mean, you know, that's a case where, you know, there's an alien invasion and uh, the alien sort of embeds itself in, in, the, in the body of a person and it sort of and it just mimics, uh, you know, uh, that person. So, like, you, you know, you don't know who is infected or whatever by the, by the alien. Uh, I've never actually seen the original movie, but, I mean, the Carpenter film is actually really creepy um, just because it's like it's so full of paranoia and stuff. Dave and I uh, have a group of friends that we watch movies with sometimes, and so um, one time we watched The Thing as a group, and, uh, you know, I, I remembered loving that movie when I'd first seen it, but um, it's, uh, and while I still think it's worth watching, it's like, all I remembered was all the good creepy stuff with the paranoia, like not knowing who was, uh, you know, taken over by the alien and stuff, and I totally forgot about, like, all the totally schlocky, like, special effects that are in it. Because it's like once the alien is inside the person, it's like it sort of bursts out and it has like these tentacles and um, and whatnot, and it just, it looks r- completely ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, like there's a part where a guy like gets his head chopped off, and then the head grows sort of spider legs and scuttles off. <laughs> and yeah, there's all sorts of these sort of '80s splatter gore special effects. So it's it's just kind of an odd uh, melding of the sort of moody, paranoid stuff with just the the gross out stuff it would be interesting if someone would make a a remake you know that that focused more on the the paranoia although actually speaking of remakes though i mean i i heard at least it's in development that um you know ron moore who who did the the new battlestar galactica series you know he's supposedly making a uh, a prequel to the thing but yeah so i mean getting back to the the heinlein book the puppet masters uh that's a similar sort of thing in that one there are these kind of slug-like aliens and they attach themselves to your back um and control you so i mean yeah so so they can impersonate people but once people start realizing what's happening they all sort of uh, insist that everybody uh, goes around mostly naked so you can see whether or not somebody's got a one of these slug-like aliens uh, riding around on their backs uh it was made into a movie in the 90s uh with uh, donald sutherland uh it's just an okay movie but it does actually it follows the plot of the novel fairly closely but uh i mean there are some examples of of just the aliens winning you know, there's uh, a, a book by Tom Dish called The Genocides. And in this book, uh, you know, people discover that these giant plants are sort of growing all over the place. These these giant sort of alien plants are kind of sucking up all the, the water and you know nutrients and things and turning the earth into a sort of a barren wasteland. And so they so people try to uh, <laughs> try to destroy these these plants. But then the aliens who've planted them just sort of start wiping people out, sort of, you know, like pest control. Um, there was also a, a story on Tor.com recently uh, by Her- Harry Turtledove called Vilcabamba. It's a, it's a similar sort of thing. It's about the United States has uh, mostly been taken over by these warlike aliens with super-powered armor and super-powered weapons and stuff. And 
the president of the United States is has become a hereditary title and it's pretty much meaningless. He doesn't have much power and his, the aliens are always demanding that he cede more and more of his territory to them and there's really nothing he can do about it. Harry Turtledove also has another uh, series where aliens invade during World War II and, you know, the, the various world powers during World War II kind of have to unite against the aliens. I was just, uh, I, I just listened to this panel discussion. It was on the Seattle Geekly podcast. And they interviewed a bunch of prominent designers of uh, pen and paper role-playing games. And um, the conversation sort of turned to, did Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, the creators of Dungeons & Dragons, did they invent the concept of the Game Master? And someone was saying that, no, that a lot of uh, the war games that, that Gygax and Arneson played did actually have a Game Master. And he was describing one where, you know, they would do stuff like, they would tell the players, like, okay, you're going to... Uh, you know, play this historical battle between England and France. And then the players, are, you know, like are at different tables where they can just see where their forces are. And then the game master kind of goes back and forth and tells them, you know, how the other player has moved and where the other forces are appearing and stuff. And then un unbeknownst to either player, aliens are actually going to invade in the middle of this war. And so as a player, you just like start hearing that your forces are just being destroyed by these super powered weapons and things. And you assume that the other player, you know, is just really beating you at this game. And then you sort of get the idea like, oh, wait, aliens have invaded. And then you have to like start sending messages to the other player. And like, like we have to unite against the aliens. And uh, that just sounded really, really fun to me. That just the idea of uh, a game that just changes so much from what you were expecting it to be right in the middle and you have to adapt to that. Because, I mean, when you think about it, like, so much of the entertainment that we get these days, you pretty much know exactly what it is. You know, you, you sort of know exactly what you're going to get going into it, that, you know, there's so many different genres and subgenres, and, uh, you know, like, the trailer often just gives away the entire, you know, the entire story of the movie or whatever, and there's just too few things, I think, where you don't really know what it's going to be going into it, and you just get something totally unexpected. I mean, actually, Scott Pilgrim was like that a little bit. I mean, um, for I mean, anyone who read the graphic novels before they uh, before they saw the movie, um, you know, you can read the first graphic novel and, and you're like, and if you don't know what it was about, I mean, the first like three quarters of the book, it's just like a it's like a mainstream book, you know. But this uh, guy was kind of a jerk, and uh, you know, he's dating a high school girl, and you know, he's in a band, and it's like, you know, you're not really sure where it's going. And then, you know, it's not until you get to the very end of the book that suddenly he, like, you know, he he gets into this fight, and and, and there's like, you know, mystical powers involved, and uh, he's a skilled fighter, like a, a somebody at the Street Fighter video game or whatever. <laughs> and um, that's a sort of a case like that that it makes me think of that just because it's like, because that's how I read the book. I, I mean, I just read it on uh, someone's recommendation, and I, I mean, I didn't know what it was about or anything, and um, so I just gave it a try, and it's. Like, and and I was just like, oh, well, and I, and I wasn't enjoying it as a mainstream book. But then it's like when the when the fighting uh, sort of came into it, I was like, oh, wow, well, uh, <laughs> this is something else than what I was thinking it was. So it was kind of nice. Yeah, and, and I mean, Scott Pilgrim versus the World is a fantastic movie, and uh, we we heartily endorse it if you haven't seen it, especially if you uh, if you're into video games at all. I mean, it's just uh, it's just it's just hilarious. Uh, I mean, another uh, sort of alien infiltration story I was going to mention uh, is this movie called They Live. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, it's a, it's an okay movie, but it just has a, a really great premise, which is there's, there's this ordinary guy, and uh, one day he discovers these glasses, and he puts on these glasses, and they enable him to see the world the way it really is. And it turns out that the world is, is ruled by aliens, and uh, all the billboards and things 
you know, humanity has sort of been hypnotized into seeing them as ads for products or whatever, but actually they all have just simple black and white messages on them, you know, such as stay asleep because, you know, you're supposed to stay hypnotized. And he opens up his wallet and looks at all the bills in it, and the bills just say, this is your God, <laughs> you know, printed in just sort of block letters on, on white paper. Actually, I was just looking at a, recently at a list of sort of all-time best movie lines, and the line from that movie was on there. Yeah, so I mean, you know, like the main character is uh, Roddy Piper. He's like a, he was a pro wrestler. So he's, you know, he's like a big imposing guy. And so there's a part where he like walks into a building and says, I have come to kick ass and chew bubble gum. And I'm all out of bubble gum. So yeah. That is classic. <laughs> um, but anyway, actually, uh, you know, this that, that movie was based on a, a short story by Ray Nelson um, called Eight O'Clock in the Morning, which was a you know, very well-regarded short story before it became the movie. Um, I believe it was actually published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction um, where I used to work. There was also this short story. I, I cannot come up with uh, the title of it. I actually posted this on my blog, and I didn't get anyone who was able to tell me what story it is, but it, it's really stuck with me. But in this story, there are these aliens, and they've uh, sort of uh, abducted this kid from Earth, and they're studying him to see what humans are like. And, and this kid is just a total brat. He's really horrible, and he crushes bugs with glee and stuff like that. I know it does kind of like typical little boy kind of stuff. And the aliens are just so horrified by his behavior that they uh, decide to exterminate humanity. And uh, at the end, he, he realizes that he's, uh, he's kind of screwed up. <laughs> hmm. um, actually, you know, I, I posted on my blog about it and I said, you know, that these aliens have no concept of childhood. And, and so they don't realize, you know, that, that humans pass through this, this stage where we're less mature. And so they just assume that everybody's like this kid. And, and somebody posted a comment and said, yeah, apparently they don't know. They also don't have a concept of statistically significant sample sizes. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so, I mean, I, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that there have been kind of, uh, uh, you know, a number of alien invasion movies, you know, that have come out recently or, or, or are in the pipeline. And um, so I just watched two of them just in the last few days in preparation for this episode. So, uh, so the first one was this movie Skyline. You know, so actually, I mean, we had seen the trailer for this, actually. I think it was attached to Scott Pilgrim, right? Yeah, um, I think so. And so, so the trailer, you know, it shows, uh, there's, this, there's this really pretty cool shot of, like, hundreds of people kind of screaming as they're suctioned up into the sky, into this uh, UFO. And, uh, and so I watched the trailer, and I was like, it was like one of those trailers where you're like, wow, that looks like a great trailer for a not very good movie, hmm. you know? I can't quite put my finger on it, but a lot of times you see a trailer and it's a really cool trailer, but there's just something, and there's nothing like bad about the trailer, but there's just something about it where you can tell that probably the movie is not that good. Uh, I think maybe sometimes like if there's no good dialogue in the trailer, that's sort of a, a tip off because that, you know, they'll, they'll put together a trailer with lots of cool special effects shots and people screaming and action and stuff. But if there are no witty lines at all in the trailer, that sort of can be a danger sign. But I sort of expected from the trailer that this movie was kind of going to be like another Independence Day where it was a sort of dramatic looking trailer, but it was going to be kind of a goofy uh, actual movie. So I was all ready to see it. And then I saw that on Rotten Tomatoes, this movie had a 14% approval rating. So ordinarily, I wouldn't have gone to see it under those circumstances. But uh, I figured since, uh, you know, I'm doing this podcast, I ought to check it out. So... Well, thanks for taking one for the team, Dave. Yeah, I hope I'm... I ought to get some, like, hazard pay or, or something <laughs> for this. But, uh... I actually, I kind of had a good time at this movie. I mean, obviously, when you go to a movie that has a 14% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, you know, you have, uh, you know, diminished expectations. But there's actually kind of an interesting story behind this movie, I guess, is that there's this other movie coming out in March called Battle Los Angeles. Uh, 
think Aaron Eckhart is in it. But apparently the studio that's making that movie hired these guys, the brothers Strauss, I think it is. Yeah, Greg and Colin Strauss, to do like some of the special effects for Battle Los Angeles. And in the middle of that, these guys were like, hey, we should make our own movie about aliens invading Los Angeles. And so I guess they, you know, they wrote and shot and did production and post-production and released this movie Skyline within the time frame that they were working on Battle Los Angeles and got it out into theaters before Battle Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I guess Sony Pictures is currently pursuing the possibility of legal action against them uh, for, uh, you know, maybe suggesting that they uh, use some of Sony's uh, resources to help them make their own movie or something. And of course, they, they deny that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, so the, these guys, the brothers Strauss, I think are, you know, they're special effects guys and apparently the screenwriters are special effects guys. And, hmm. you know, uh, it's kind of funny cause the characters, you know, the movie, cause, cause you they're know, also special effects. Yeah. Like the movie starts out and, you know, this guy has been invited to Los Angeles by his old friend who wants him to work in special effects in Hollywood. <laughs> and now it's kind of like, no, you've got to be kidding me. But, uh. I actually was kidding when I said that, but I didn't. No, no, that's <laughs> I actually, that, to agree. no, that's actually what it is. Yeah. I think that's there's there's like an idea for a great comedy in there somewhere about like you know special effects guys in Hollywood get attacked by aliens and they have to like use their knowledge of special effects or something. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. But there's nothing like that in the movie. It's a uh, you know I don't well, know. They but... say write what you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the special effects are actually pretty good. You know. Uh... Well, they better be. I mean, if everybody in the movie <laughs> is in a special effects person, you know. Um, so there are there's there's some pretty cool cool shots. I mean the. Uh... Like the like the dialogue is all really trite, and like the the characters' actions don't make any sense at all and stuff. But uh, but if if you know, and it, but, oh, and it's it's sort of like you know, it's obviously they're just trying to replicate the success of Cloverfield. And so if you haven't seen Cloverfield, definitely watch Cloverfield. And if you like that, watch Independence Day. And if you like that, play Half Life Two. And uh, if you still haven't had enough of that sort of thing, maybe you could check out Skyline. It's sort of uh, you know bits and pieces of of those three things. You know, kind of done on a shoestring budget. Um, and the ending is like, it, it, it actually got some points from me for the ending because the ending is uh, it's like so tasteless and like inexplicable that it's actually kind of awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so tune in next week when we interview the Strauss brothers. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know, it's its making all sorts of lists as like one of the worst movies of the year. But <laughs> if you're forewarned about that and you still want to see it, you know, go check it out. Because I, I, you know, I sort of went into it forewarned and, and I ended up uh, kind of enjoying myself. I certainly, it, it didn't make me like lose my will to live in the way that like Transformers 2 or uh, G.I. <laughs> Joe did. Uh, so that's something anyway. And then uh, there was this other movie that just came out called Monsters. And it was it was kind of funny watching these two movies back to back because they're about as different from each other as two alien invasion movies could be. And I, I feel like I can't really say anything about Monsters without sort of ruining it. And I haven't even seen it, so don't. Yeah, but I do I do recommend it's it's worth watching for sure. I don't know, maybe we'll talk about it uh, in a future episode when people have had a chance to see it. Okay, so uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this word from our sponsor. New from Brilliance Audio, Shipbreaker by Paolo Bacigalupi. In America's Gulf Coast region, where grounded oil tankers are being broken down for parts, Naylor, a teenaged boy, works the light crew, scavenging for copper wiring just to make quota and hopefully live to see another day. But when, by luck or chance, 
He discovers an exquisite clipper ship beached during a recent hurricane. Naylor faces the most important decision of his life. Strip the ship for all it's worth, or rescue its lone survivor, a beautiful and wealthy girl who could lead him to a better life. In this powerful novel, award-winning author Paolo Bacigalupi delivers a thrilling, fast-paced adventure set in a vivid and raw, uncertain future. An unabridged recording of Shipbreaker by Paolo Bacigalupi, narrated by Joshua Swanson, available now from Brilliance Audio and wherever audiobooks are sold. And we're back. Uh, you know, so we, and also uh, when Greg Barrow was talking about, you know, the Mongoliad and how they're how he's, you know, training to use the sword with Neil Stevenson and stuff. It was just kind of reminding me of how when I was a teenager and I was reading all these fantasy novels, and man, I just wanted my own sword more than anything. And, uh, you know, my mom wouldn't let me get a sword, you know, probably probably wisely. And, uh, you know, I was reading um, Dragon Magazine, and in the back of Dragon Magazine, they just had all these classified ads for all sorts of weird things. And, and so there was this company I discovered through that called... Uh, Museum Replicas Limited, and it's this company, and they make swords and daggers and Renaissance clothing and Roman armor and, you know, all sorts of uh, things along those lines that, you know, none of none of the stuff I was allowed to get. Um, but there was this this book uh, that they advertised called Records of the Medieval Sword, and it cost $100, you know, which was just a huge amount of money <laughs> for me at that time. And uh, I was like, I don't know what's in this book, but if it costs $100, it must be pretty amazing. But, but I was like, wow, I don't know if I want to spend $100 on this book, though. So I actually I wrote a letter you know, to the company sort of asking uh, about the book. And, and I had a lot of questions because it was really frustrating because I, I, had, I had read all these books about you know, siege warfare and knights in armor and medieval warfare and swords and sword fighting techniques and all this stuff. And none of these books agreed on anything. And uh, it was so frustrating. And so, like, one thing was that about half the books I read said that the armor was so heavy that when a knight was knocked over, he wouldn't be able to get back up again. And he would just sort of have to lie there and basically be helpless. And someone might just come along and put him out of his misery by sticking a knife through the slits in his visor or something. <laughs> and then the other half of the book said, you know, no, knights could actually move around pretty well in their armor. And I just could not figure out what, what was the truth. And so I figured, well, this, you know, these guys uh, at Museum Replicas Limited, they actually make this armor and stuff. They must know. So I wrote a letter and, and asked this question and, uh, and said, and, and this book, Records of the Medieval Sword, is it really worth a hundred bucks? <laughs> and so the guy wrote me back this long letter. He's like, you know, he's like, oh, of course the book's worth the money, you know? <laughs> and also, I mean, he was saying that, yeah, that's just a total myth about knights in armor being helpless, like turned turtles. Because obviously, you know, if, if the armor incapacitated you that much, if you get, got knocked over, nobody would wear it. It's just not, it wouldn't be worth it. Um, and he said, actually, you know, people, uh, especially if you've trained to wear the armor your whole life, you can actually, uh, you know, do acrobatics and handstands and, and stuff all in your armor. Uh, later, I would read uh, an account of this, this knight who would just go for, you know, like he would jog a mile every morning, you know, in full armor, uh, just, uh, you know, as part of his fitness routine. But so, so I was like, okay, I'm sold. So I ordered this book. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what I expected, <laughs> but it turned out that this book, uh, this guy had just gone around to museums all over the world and just basically taken a picture of every sword in every collection anywhere and just sort of written a description of it and its dimensions and stuff like that. And so, uh, so it's just this big book full of photographs of sort of mostly decayed swords. Hmm. And uh, that was not what I was uh, hoping for, but uh, I still have that book, though. Well, you better keep it forever. It costs $100. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But 
there was all sorts of like wacky stuff I, I ordered from the classified ads in Dragon Magazine, though. I, I, I bought this book once on how to make chain mail. And I wasn't really sure, you know, I don't know. Again, I don't know what I imagined the book was going to say. Was it out of the tops of soda cans? No, this one, what you were supposed to do is you're supposed to buy wire and then get a power saw, uh, a power drill and sort of thread the wire through the power drill and then, you know, pull the trigger and it would just wind it all into a big oh. co coil. Hmm, that sounds dangerous. And then you were supposed to like take clippers and clip vertically so that you would have all these little links, you know, with a, a break at the top. And then you were supposed to just twist them into this particular configuration. And uh, I was like so psyched to make some chain mail. And I took one look at like, like what a pain this would be. And I was like, forget it. I am not doing this. I mean, I can't even imagine how long it would take to, to make, make chain mail using this method. And obviously, you know, people in medieval times didn't have power drills. So. Wait, are you sure they didn't have them back then? <laughs> power drill's been around for a while. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, uh, what you were saying about the, the armor and, and, you know, the knights falling over and not being able to get back up, that, just, that reminded me, um, you know, I was at Worldcon one year and, uh, I went to some panel, um, on, you know, like life in medieval times or something or, or something like that. And, um, so Sean McMullen, you know, the author Sean McMullen was on the panel and, and he, and he had done some sort of training where he, you know, he was outfitted in, in like full plate armor or something and given a sword and stuff. And he actually sparred, you know, like in the hot sun <laughs> wearing full plate armor. And he's just, oh my God, he, he made it sound so awful. It was like the worst thing he had ever done, you know, just like it was like, he was just like boiling inside the armor and it was just like, it was incredibly heavy and really hard to move. And, and then he's like, you know, he knows how, he knows his way around a sword and everything. So, you know, it was, it was quite eye opening to him, you know, cause I mean, he writes that sort of, he writes some um, fantasy in that sort of vein. So, um, you know, he was doing it as his research and, uh, uh, it just it always stuck with me like how awful he made it sound and I was like wow yeah I mean I'm kind of glad I didn't uh, you know as as much as as much as we like to uh, imagine uh, being a knight or whatever like we play D and D and we have characters who wear full plate armor and whatnot it's like uh, uh, I think we should be probably pretty glad that we didn't live during those times when when you know you would wear such a thing. Well, that reminds me, I mean, some of those books I read, they claimed that, you know, like when the, the knights, uh, you know, headed off for the Crusades to attack Jerusalem, and they had no idea what they were getting themselves in for in terms of the climate and, and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that they were like these guys in plate armor would, you know, ride east and it would be so hot that they would be sweating so much that the sweat would fill up their entire suit of armor and drown them. <laughs> you know, that they would. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a little ridiculous. Yeah, and, and now that I think about that, that sounds a little hard to believe, but. Uh, <laughs> That's a pretty cool. I don't know. That's a good story. It's though. a good story. I have a feeling that's a lot of the editorial uh, policy toward a lot of these books I read. That that's sort of what it was. Like that's a good story. Let's stick it in there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that was our episode. Uh, be sure to check back in two weeks for our next episode. And uh, thanks for listening. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9 and is brought to you by Brilliance Audio. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit io9.com slash tag slash geeks guide. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.